Well, thank you for joining us today, for braving the weather. Um, as a native Californian and as also someone who's lived in other parts of the country for a couple of decades in my life, I have to say to you who've never lived anywhere else, we are soft when it comes to weather. <laughs> you know, I, I looked at the weather this morning, I thought not many people are going to show up today because <laughs> I know Californians, but uh, hey, we're glad you're here and we are glad for everybody watching online and uh, just glad that God loved us and we're his people and we get to gather together with others of his people as his family. Amen. Well, we are digging into Romans 9 again this week. We are again asking some difficult questions about some doctrines that may at first seem detached uh, from our daily lives, maybe kind of academic. But when we look at them, I think the more we think about them, the more we will see how glorious and beautiful and life-changing and faith-transforming they actually truly are. So that's what we're going to be doing today. Before we get into our study, I, I do want to ask every one of you uh, if you would do a couple of things. Uh, first of all, I'd like to ask you uh, to be praying, as you heard a, a moment earlier, for our elder team today and tomorrow. So we're going to be in a retreat, um, taking an overnight away uh, from Tracy to just spend time in prayer, asking God um, about his vision for Southwinds and the future, about the work that he's doing, and just... just uh, Pray that God will give us leadership and guidance um, as we do that. Who, who says they're going to remember to pray for the elder team in the next day? I appreciate that so much if you would do that. And then second, I want to remind you of what we talked about last week. And I want to invite you to, if you haven't already, join us in our Who's Your One uh, emphasis that we're, we're going to be engaging in. And between now and Easter, we've done this a couple of times before. It's really simple. Uh, we're just asking everybody who's a part of the Southwinds family uh, to, to ask the Lord, who's this one person, at least one person in your life that you would like to see come to faith in Jesus Christ? And you're going to commit to pray for them every, every day uh, between now and Easter. Uh, we've got some tools that will help you do that. There's a little tear-off card on the end of this and a bookmark on the other end. And we'd like you to put the first name of, of your person uh, on the card and put it on the, the Who's Your One wall that's out in the lobby so we can all know what we're doing together. Um, I, I think it's such an important thing uh, for us to re be reminded of the gospel that we are privileged to have uh, received and, and, to, and to be a part of God's family and how we want others to come and be a part of that as well. And so uh, if, if you're uh, willing to do that, please join us. Um, there's supplies out in the lobby. And if you have any questions about it, just let me or one of the pastors know. We'd be happy to help. All right. We are studying Romans 9, verses 14 through 18 today. And uh, you'll want to get your Bibles out, open, turned on. And we're asking this question, is God unjust? Now, last week, we, we talked about how God sovereignly chooses his people, how God passes over others. And it's not because of their will, our will, but his and I've learned over the years that when people hear this for the first time, a couple of things tend to happen, like almost simultaneously. First, there's a shock of like, wait, what? That's in the Bible? And second, there's the thought that this cannot be good news. And so my job today in part is to show you why 
uh, both of those things are actually true, that it's in the Bible. The Bible does teach you that, that it is good news and to show you why it matters. And Paul's big idea for us in this text today is actually very simple. He is saying God is just, or maybe you want to use the word righteous, in his unconditional election. He's just, he's righteous. And I I, want to again say, if this is new to you, like I said a couple of weeks ago, it's okay to take this slow. It's okay to process and be on a journey. And I want to ask you to work hard not to react, to listen carefully if something seems strange or new to you, and and to be willing maybe uh, to question assumptions that you maybe have already had and, and also to realize that God, being God, may just be working in ways that are beyond our comprehension. So with those things in mind, let's read God's word, starting in verse 14. Paul writes, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. So I'm gonna give you three really straightforward, simple statements uh, that we get from Paul in these verses. Here's the first one if you're taking notes. Paul says, God is just to unconditionally choose those who will be his, to choose those who will be his. And and this is the question, again, that Paul is responding to in our verses. We we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Is God unjust to choose who will he is? And Paul asked that question in verse 14, is there injustice on God's part? And he answers his own question by saying, by no means. Emphatic. This word uh, injustice can also be translated unrighteousness, and maybe that's what your translation says. But either way, Paul is just asking this question Is God doing something wrong here? That's what he's asking. And Paul says, No way. No way. Now, again, why is he asking this? You want to remember the flow of Paul's argument. We saw back in verse 6 where he talked about not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Paul was saying that within the larger uh, body of ethnic Israel, there's this smaller spiritual true Israel. And so not everyone who's physically or ethnically Jewish is part of this true spiritual Israel. He then gives two examples of how God chose Isaac over Ishmael, how he chose Jacob over Esau. And that all raised this question. Well, then if not everybody's part of true Israel, how do you get into true Israel? How does that happen? And Paul answers the question. You may want to go review this in verse 11. It is probably the clearest statement of unconditional election in the Bible. And he says there, it's not by any human work. He says it's by God's purpose in election. And election is a word that simply means to choose. And so uh, Paul is explicitly saying it's by God's choice. So he says true Israel or God's people, as we would think of it today, both Jews and Gentiles, they are created through God's sovereign choice. 
And it's not because of any conditions in those people. It's not because of any conditions we may meet. It is because of his will alone. That's why we call it unconditional election. Now, again, uh, we know that Paul is interacting with people and, and we know that natural objection that arises to a statement like this is the one probably all of us have thought. And it's simply this. Well, that's not fair. That's not fair. Some of you are thinking this right now. Uh, it all seems so arbitrary. It seems unjust. And Paul anticipates that. And so he just asks the question, is there injustice on God's part? And as I said, he says emphatically, no, by no means. Now, I want to point something out to you that you may not see at first. I want you to not miss that Paul doesn't go on defense here. See, it's a different reflex that most of us have when we come to texts like this. We, we, we reflexively try to soften Paul's words, right? We are immediately trying to explain those words away to say, oh, well, they don't probably quite mean exactly what they sound like they, they mean. But Paul doesn't do that, does he? Paul clearly says God is just to do it this way. God is right to do it this way. And just let that sink in. God is just or right to choose unconditionally who will be his, not based on human will or exertion, but based on his own will. Now, we could refer to his other attributes as well as we're thinking about this. We could also say that God is loving to do it this way. That he's holy to do it this way. That he is good to do it this way. And, and the reason I'm, I'm pointing this out is just to remind us that of something that may seem a little odd to say at first, but it should be obvious once you hear it. God is always all of who he is at all times. And that means in this case here, God is not just just, but he's all of his other attributes as, as well. Uh, theologians have a word for this, a phrase for this. They call it the simplicity of God. It, it's just that God is one being. He, he's, not, he's not a bunch of parts. And, and we tend to think of him like this because it's kind of hard to imagine uh, all of the things that God is. But it's just telling us that God never has to drop certain attributes at certain times to accomplish his will. He does not ever have to set aside his love in order to be just. God never has to set aside his justice in order to be tender and merciful. He, he never has to set aside his power to be kind. See, God's simplicity means that he is not merely a composite of different parts. And, and that goes against our tendency to feel like, well, sometimes God's loving and sometimes God's angry and sometimes God's this and sometimes God's that. That's not an adequate way of thinking about God. It's not biblical. God is always all of who he is at all times in all circumstances. And this is important because when we think of something like this, it's easy for us to think that God may just be working out of his, you know, stern side when he does this. And then other times he's, 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 he's loving. But Paul wants us to, say, to see that this is truly who God is and it does not reflect on his goodness in any way. God is just. God is right. God's not, can we say it, sinning in doing this. Now, maybe some will say there is no way for God to be just 
if he is the ultimate cause. In fact, that is what some people say about this doctrine. And, and so that is often the response that some people have, maybe our first emotional response. Maybe this has to mean something else. But I just want to challenge you to look at the text and ask yourself what it actually says, what the words are actually telling us. And in my experience, what usually keeps people from accepting what Paul is saying here are are some unstated assumptions that we often make about ourselves and about the rest of humanity, some assumptions that when you examine them really aren't biblical. And kind of hold that in mind. We're going to get to it. But here's the second statement that Paul makes that I want us to see. He says, God is free to give mercy to anyone he pleases. That's Paul's point in verse 15. He's in essence saying, well, let me tell you why God is not unjust to choose some and to reject others. It says in verse 15, for he says to Moses, now he's going to quote Exodus 33, 19. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And a quick side note here, a lot of times people will tell me, you know, only Paul says, this is just Paul's thing, but don't miss that Paul is taking his cues from the Old Testament over and over and over again. And the truth is, and we'll probably talk about this next week, the whole Bible talks like this. Jesus talks like this. This is not, uh, uh, you know, sequestered just to Paul's writings. In Exodus 33, 19, which he quotes, this occurs after Moses has asked Yahweh to show mercy to Israel after the golden calf incident. And and God listens to Moses' prayer. And and then Moses asks to see Yahweh's glory. He, He wants to be assured that after the great sin of the golden calf, that God's just not gonna abandon the Israelites in the wilderness. This is what we read going back to Exodus 33, verses 18 and 19. Moses said, please show me your glory. Verse 19, and he said, and this is God's response, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, or Yahweh. And then this is the part of verse 19 that Paul quotes in Romans 9. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy mercy. This is a fascinating passage. There's so much going on here, but one important thing to note is that when Moses asks to see God's glory, God responds and leads by proclaiming his name, Yahweh. And we we know that name means I am, right? I am. Here's what this is telling us. This name, Yahweh, God's personal name, refers to his absolute self-existence, his absolute freedom, his absolute being. God is the only being in the universe that doesn't depend on anything else. He is ultimate being, and all being, all existence flows from him. And then it's fascinating what Yahweh attaches to his name. Like immediately after he pronounces the name, which tells us that, what does he say next? At the end of verse 19, he says, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. What's the point? Well, the point 
that God is making is as integral to the, if we could call it the godness of God. I mean, who God is, is his freedom to give mercy to whoever he pleases. Do you see that? That is what it means to be Yahweh, to give mercy where he pleases without cause or constraint or compulsion by any outside forces. Why? He is Yahweh. He's God. He is sovereignly free to show mercy and to withhold mercy. And he is holy and just and right to do whatever he chooses to do. Does your heart say amen to that? He's God. And and again, I I want you to not miss how Paul's answering the objection here. He's not going on the defensive. You might say that he's kind of doubling down here. Paul is saying because God is God, he's holy and just and free to do what he wants. He's the free sovereign creator. He can show his mercy. He can show his goodness. He can show his grace any way that he chooses. Now, it would be highly unusual if there weren't at least a few of us right now, at least internally going, I don't know about that, struggling with this. And if that's you, that's okay. This is kind of a normal thing, especially if this is new to you. But I want to say this. In in my experience talking with different people for decades about this now, uh, most of our struggles with the doctrine of unconditional election boiled down, I think, to this. We, we tend to think too highly of ourselves and too lowly of God. See, most people in the world, at least, tend to think of humanity in general as, well, flawed, of course, but, but people's hearts are good, right? I mean, they're trying their best. They're they're trying their hardest. They're doing the best thing they know how to do. They, they, they think that people really would, would like to know God. That's how people are, right? They, they, they really want to know him. And so if God elects some people and not others, then that means there must be some people who would choose God, but they can't because God didn't chose them, choose them. And if that were the case, then of course we would say, Election would be unjust. How could God do this? How could God choose some and not other people who are doing their best and who really want to know him? And and you might even say, if that's God, I don't really want to believe in a God like that. But is that what the Bible says about human nature? That we are naturally flawed, but generally good people. And the answer is no. It's not what the Bible says. Let's just stay in Romans for a couple minutes. Remember, if you can roll back in your mind to the very first three chapters of Romans, what was Paul's concern in all of those three chapters? He's unpacking the condition of sin in which every single human being is born and lives. And and he concludes in verses 10 through 12 of chapter 3 like this. He says, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. 
See, the Bible teaches that, that by our nature, we do not want God. We do not trust God. We cannot please God. That's Romans 8, 8. And therefore, because of those things, our sin, we deserve the just judgment of God. Now, we, we, we might want what God gives us, right? And we do. We, we want the things God can give, long life and comfort and earthly pleasures and fame and health and wealth and heaven. But we don't want him. And if that is the lens through which we're reading this passage, what I've just said, then we will interpret it radically differently. We will find ourselves thinking, yes, it is right for God to do what he pleases, to extend mercy and compassion to whom he will. It is just. Why? Because he is God and we are not. We are sinners. We are rebels. And if it wasn't ultimately up to God, then I would never choose him. Do you understand? That's what the Bible says. None of us would ever choose God on our own. The Bible consistently makes that, the, 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 that statement And so, therefore, God is just to do it this way. Paul is just saying it is entirely just and righteous for God to pass over all humanity, to judge us for our willful rebellion against him. God is under zero obligation to save anyone because no one deserves to be saved. And if that is true, and the Bible says it is, then it is just and right within God's sovereign freedom as Yahweh to choose to extend mercy as a overflowing of his divine goodness to some people and not others. Are you beginning to see how different this is than the way the world usually thinks? I think God wants you to listen, some of you. See, we need to be careful because I think even those of us who believe the gospel, who believe that we're sinners, sometimes have allowed some assumptions from outside of the Bible to creep in unwittingly. And and we begin to assume that God ought to show mercy to everyone. And if we think that, we're mistaken. But it is revealing we have a much higher view of ourselves than than the Bible even teaches ever. Maybe think of it this way. This is just a simple illustration. You could think of a number of them. But, you know, um, every several years, uh, the president of the United States, uh, usually on his way out of office, will choose to pardon some people, right, for uh, various reasons. And here's the thing. Think about it. Just because the president chooses to pardon one prisoner, that doesn't mean that he ought to, has to, must pardon every prisoner or to give every prisoner an equal opportunity to pardon, right? I mean, we, we get that on a human level, and it's just reinforcing what the Bible is telling us, that God's choice is sheer mercy to the undeserving. And that's what salvation is, right? I mean, let me just ask you, do you believe that salvation is by grace alone? Say, answer the question. Yeah, of course we do. That's what we teach. It's what we believe. If it's by grace, what did you do to get it? Nothing. It's by grace. It's mercy. It's not deserved. And so that means that no sinner has the right to say, you know, God, you owe me mercy. Only sinners think that because they're not thinking in truth. If mercy 
is owed or deserved, then it is no longer mercy. And God reserved for himself the sovereign absolute right to give mercy to who he chooses to withhold it from others. And what that should cause in us is to cause us to close our mouths and to bow our heads in awe, worshiping the God of such greatness It's not unjust for God to pass over some. This is just called justice. That's what we deserve. And it's not unjust for God to give mercy to some. That's why it's called mercy. We don't deserve it. See, the real mystery and the real shock of the universe is this question that very few people ever ask. Why does he give mercy to anyone? You know, we talk about the problem of evil. Well, that's a problem doesn't make sense. Why does he do that? And we think, well, he should. That's just because we're sinful. But God doesn't owe it to, to anyone. So is there injustice on God's part? No. Is there unrighteousness, sin in God? No. Paul concludes uh, this thought in verse 16. And you can just see it in the text. So then, he's drawing a conclusion, it depends And it is referring to God's unconditional electing purpose. It depends on what? Not on human will. What's will? That's our choice. Not on human exertion. What's that? That's our efforts, our our works. But on God who has mercy. And let's kind of stop here. If you have your Bible, you really should underline this verse. You really should think about this verse, ponder it, let it soak in because Paul is saying something tremendously important. He is just underlining and emphasizing the sheer unconditionality of God's election and God's undeserved mercy. He is saying the ultimate decisive factor in our salvation is God, not us. Now, I've said this the last couple of weeks. I'm saying it again. I will continue to say it. We are called to make a decision to follow Christ. We are called to have faith, but that faith is never the ultimate decisive factor in our election. It's an effect of, not a cause of. And this verse is so important because it, it just addresses the thing that so many people find controversial, which is the human will. I mean, from my perspective, this should put an end to those debates because I I think it's impossible to treat this first honestly and then to say, well, it's my free will. That's the actual basis of my salvation because that's exactly the opposite of what the verse says. It is not our free will. It is God's free will, God's purpose. That's what's decisive. Now, again, so we don't misunderstand, let me say it. We have free will. But the Bible's witness is that apart from God's merciful initiative, we will never freely choose God on our own. This is kind of philosophical, but think about this. Free will can never mean existing in some reality outside of God's sovereign purposes. And the reason is that reality just doesn't exist. See, Paul is just telling us as clearly as he can, human will is not the ultimate Decisive condition of election, not based on human will or effort, but on God's mercy. Now, I'm telling you this is clear. I'm not telling you it's easy to receive. I'm telling you it's easy to read. I think you see it. That doesn't mean it's easy to understand and accept it, but it's right here. And we need to grapple with that. 
And if you are in any way hanging on to any idea that you somehow have played the ultimate decisive role in your salvation, you should set that aside because whether you intend to or not, your theology is undermining God's sovereignty and it's undercutting the the sweetness of his mercy to you. You know, even if you're still not quite buying this, I'd like you to ask yourself, maybe think about this. What, What would it do to my faith if I really knew and really believed that God chose me before the foundations of the earth apart from anything I'd ever done? Ever thought about what that would mean? We're going to get to that in a few moments. It, it does good things for your soul. Trust me, it really does. Now, Paul, Paul's not done. Uh, his righteous, God's righteousness, he says, is not only seen in his mercy, but also in his judgment of sinful unbelief, those he passes over. And that's what he says in the last two verses where he tells us the third thing, where he says that God is right to harden anyone he pleases. Now, that's a shocking sentence. And I, I get it. I, I get it if, if you're like, what? I mean, so, so just kind of walk with me here. Let's look what Paul does. He, he turns uh, back to the story of Exodus in verse 17. And he says, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, he's here quoting Exodus 9, 16. For this very purpose, Pharaoh, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And it's like Paul, God, God is saying, and Paul's quoting him, Pharaoh, you think you're the king, but I appointed you to this position and I didn't do it for your glory. I did it to show my power in you, to show my power uh, to the world over your evil so that my people who are in their powerlessness as your slaves may revel in my power to save them. That's why you're here, Pharaoh. And then look what he says in verse 18. So then, again, this conclusion So then he has mercy on whomever he wills. Now he's summing up verses 15 and 16 there. And he hardens whomever he wills. Let's think about that. Remember what's happening in Exodus. God sent Moses and Aaron to tell Pharaoh to set his people free from slavery. Pharaoh repeatedly refuses and God sends plagues then against Pharaoh and against Egypt. It's all to show he's God. Pharaoh is not, even though he's the world's reigning superpower. If you go back, if you go back to um, Exodus and read through, you're going to find 18 times there's a reference to the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. In some cases, nine of them, it says the Lord hardened his heart. In six cases, it says his heart was hardened. It doesn't say anything who who did it exactly. It just says it was hardened. In only three of those 18 cases does it say that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. But there's something I want you to notice, and I want to read a few of those examples. Before the very first plague, Exodus 7, 13, and I want you just to listen. It says... Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Then after uh, the, the next plague, so this is before the first plague, this is after the first plague, Exodus 7.22 says, So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. And then after the third, uh, second plague, Exodus 8.15 
But when Pharaoh saw there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. And then after the third plague, Exodus 8, 19, it says, but Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord has said. Maybe you notice this phrase I keep emphasizing, as the Lord has said. What's that about? Well, it refers back to Exodus 4, 21, where God is first telling Moses and Aaron to go to Pharaoh. And, and, and this is God's first word to Moses about Pharaoh, Exodus 4.21. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. See, before Moses even got to Egypt, God told him, I'm going to harden his heart. And so all these other mentions of as the Lord have said are references back to Exodus 4.21. God declared that he would harden Pharaoh's heart before he was even in Egypt. And so Paul's point is that whether it was Pharaoh hardening his heart or whether his heart was being hardened by God, in each case, it was happening as the Lord had said. And what God said was, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. In other words, however we put all of this together, behind Pharaoh's self-hardening and being hardened is the plan and the purpose of a sovereign God. That's the point. And that's why Paul says, so then God has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. So how do we understand this concept of hardening I think it plays right into what we're talking about here. How does that work? Well, the first thing we need to remember is Pharaoh was not innocent. Like every one of us, he was born under the reign of sin. He is a sinner. We're all sinners. And what that means is that to harden someone's heart, God does not have to create any new evil, any new unbelief, any more resistance in the human heart. He doesn't need to make someone more evil or more unbelieving or rebellious. All God needs to do is remove his restraint. See, that's the reason why every human being is not as bad as they might otherwise be. It's because of God's restraining power. And so if that's true, then that means that hardening is not introduction of a new condition, but rather the intensification of a present condition. Tim Keller explains it like this. He says, when God God hardens someone, he doesn't create the hardness. He simply allows the person to go his or her, her own way. God hardens those he wants to harden and all those whom he hardens want to be hardened. That's what Paul's talking about. Maybe that causes you to recall what we, what we studied back in Romans 1 in verses 24 and 26 and 28, where there's this repeated refrain that God gave them over to, to sin. He, he, he talks about that, Paul does, how God permits sinful people to go their sinful way and they receive the consequences of that. And it isn't because he's unjust, it's because he is just. It's that letting them go their sinful way, actually this is part of God's judgment on sin. And so think about it. What we call freedom, where getting, getting to do what we want, when we want to do it, with whom we want to do it, that's not freedom. It is it's just a form of God's just judgment on our sin. And it just leads to further hardening. That's what happened to Pharaoh. 
And that's what happens to people today when we abuse God's patience, his repeated calls to repent. When we refuse the gospel, our hearts get harder and harder. And and that's the pattern we see from Genesis to Revelation. We see God giving over a sinner to sin. And that giving over, it is not unjust. It is his justice in action. And friends, that should make us tremble. It's God saying to people, so you want to sin? Okay, go for it. I'll remove my restraints. I'll open the floodgates. You can have what you want. And the result of that is the sinner will never choose God on their own. They will always choose more unbelief and more rebellion and selfishness. And it always results in more hardened hearts. So let me ask you, if you're struggling with this, why would it be unfair to give someone what they want? Now, every week as we're looking at Romans 9, there's a point, I think, where we kind of hit the bedrock of mystery And people who are hardened, the Bible says, are really guilty for their hardening. Pharaoh is guilty. People have real fault, real guilt. They're really blameworthy because they're choosing choosing the path of their own volition. And and then every week we have to come back to this reality that, that unconditional election does not nullify human responsibility, that God has set up the universe for those realities. Maybe we could say it like this, that God's sovereignty and our human freedom and responsibility are not enemies, but they're friends. And we can remind ourselves what the Bible tells us, that we are saved by faith. We choose to follow. And we also die through hardened and penitent hearts. In other words, our choices are real and God never turns anyone away that all who, 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 who want to believe in him can believe and they do believe and all who do not believe willfully choose their sin over God. Now, how God does this, how he actually hardens hearts while also preserving human responsibility, we're not explicitly told in the scriptures. It's simply assumed. And, and so I know I am not removing a mystery. I, I am here simply stating a mystery. But while the mystery remains, the revelation that God gives here is clear. And so there are points as we study God's word where we have to be content with what God has revealed and go no further. And, and God saves sinners, Paul makes it clear, by his unconditional election. Now, we're going to see, see in a few weeks in Romans 10 uh, that we are still responsible to repent and believe, that we are still responsible to tell people about Christ. We are still responsible to choose to follow him. And God doesn't tell us everything about how that happens. He just tells us it happens. We know it happens. Why? Because it happened to us. Amen. By the mercy of God, through the spirit of God, by the word of God, through the gospel of God, as that is proclaimed to us, it happens. We're changed. We, we, We get new hearts. We become followers of Jesus Christ. But if God does that for us, is he obliged, obligated to do it for everyone? And Paul says no. Paul says no. How should that make those of us who have been saved, feel? Should we be proud? No. No. We should not be proud. 
It's all by grace. We should be humble, right? We didn't do anything to get it. It's the sheer mercy and grace of God. I mean, you, you, you look at these texts we've been studying. Jacob got mercy. Esau got justice. Isaac got mercy. Ishmael got justice. Israel got mercy. Pharaoh got justice. The elect get mercy. The non-elect get justice. Nobody gets injustice. Nobody gets injustice. God is just in his unconditional election, in his mercy to those who are his, in his justice to those that, who, who, who pass, that he passes over. And rather than clench our fists and get angry at God against his sovereign mercy, it is far better for us to get on our knees and just plead for mercy with him. Now I want to close by answering this question. How is unconditional election good news? This is not just something we need to swallow and deal with it like it's bad tasting medicine. You know, from the outside, this doctrine for some of us will feel kind of cold and clinical, but it's actually not. I want to show you four reasons why. And here's the first one. You can write these all down. An unconditional election is good news because it means God gets all the glory for our salvation. He gets all the glory, all the way from predestination to glorification. Unconditional election reveals that God is the ultimate decisive factor at every point in our salvation. He gets all the glory and honor and praise. See, his unfathomable grace and mercy for undeserving sinners like us, oh, it should make us want to take off our shoes and get in our faces and praise him with everything we have. See, if, if you don't know him yet and you're here and you're considering the claims of the gospel, this should cause you to throw off your sins and run to him. He is your only hope and help. But if this is not true and we are the ultimate cause of our salvation, do you see we rob God of some of his glory we're seeking to share some of his praise. Some of you right now, I'm, I'm sure of it, and your hearts are like, well, can I, didn't I, uh, didn't I just do something? I mean, I chose, right? And I just have to ask, well, why do, you, why do you want to claim something, anything? See, the glory is God's. The glory is God's. Don't seek to share his praise for your salvation. You know, God has, God has chosen us in order to free us from the debilitating disease of our culture, which is celebrating ourselves. Everybody around us thinks that's what you got to do. And God has set us free from this debilitating disease so, so that we can celebrate him, not ourselves. Our culture disciples us to think that, that psychological health comes from making much of ourselves. And all I have to say is take a look around, see how well that's going. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that psychological health, which the Bible calls joy, by the way, comes from us making much of God. An unconditional election is good news because it makes much of God and his glory, and it is what we are created for. It's good news. Amen. Second, unconditional election is good news because it means our sin does not have the last word. And this means that the human heart cannot be so hard that God cannot overcome it. 
By contrast, if we were the ultimate decisive factor, then there would be some degrees of hardness we could not overcome. But that cannot happen because God's the ultimate decisive factor. And this is at the heart of the new covenant promise, Ezekiel eleven nineteen, where God says, I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. See, some of us, we, we know people, right? They've resisted the gospel for years, maybe decades. And, and it's easy for us to despair, right? And to think they're just too hard. It's been just too long. They're, they're too set in their ways. They're too old. They'll never change, right? Sometimes people come to me, pastor, as a pastor, and say, you know, I'm too bad. I, I've done too many horrible sins. I'm too far gone. Do you understand that embedded in all of those thoughts is the idea that we must contribute something to our salvation? But we don't. God's election is not based on anything we think, feel, do, have done, or will do. It is based on his mercy, which is free and undeserved. And that puts everyone on an equal playing field. No matter what you've done, no matter what you failed to do, and that means it doesn't matter how hardened a sinner anyone might be. There's always hope because God, not our sin, has the last word. God, not our sin, is the ultimate decisive factor. See, when you get this, this doesn't discourage us, but it encourages us to run to Jesus there's no reason for you not to because God says to everyone, come, come. Today is the day of salvation. Turn from your sins. Come to Jesus. Come. God is saying that right now. If you don't know him, you can be saved. You know, don't, don't wonder if you're elect or not. That's God's business. God says to you, come, trust my son, repent of your sins, be saved. Because he can save anyone from anything, anywhere, at any time. Doesn't matter how hard you are. Amen? Amen? Third, unconditional election is good news because it gives indestructible assurance to our souls. And what I mean by this is when we know we are loved and forgiven and accepted by grace through faith, and it's all due to God's election of us, when we know that we were chosen by him in mercy before the very foundation of the world, apart from anything we have done or ever will do. You see, it means that the roots of God's commitment to us go down into eternity. It also means if he chose you in mercy, he's never gonna unchoose you. Nothing gives us more rock solid assurance than this. And by contrast, when we think it's up to us, we're in trouble, right? We know how fickle our hearts are. We know how weak our, our, our thoughts can be. We, we know how often we fall and fail, right? But you see, our, our, our assurance is not based on us. It's based on God and how kind God is, isn't he, to give us this kind of assurance? It's based on him. And then finally, fourth Unconditional election is good news because it transforms the human heart. And here's what I mean. It, it, it creates this kind of unique work in the human heart. Nothing else does because it first of all raises this question. God has chosen me? Me? I, I, I don't deserve anything. Me? 
I know how dark and sinful I am. How has God chosen me? And then, and then out of the humility that that births, it leads me to also think God has chosen me. On the one hand, God has chosen me. On the other hand, God has chosen me. And that's the thrill because it creates thankful, humble awe that we would know this God. And it is this juxtaposition of humility and awe that should be unique to Jesus' chosen born-again people. Nothing else does this in our hearts. Nothing else does this in our hearts. See, God is sovereign, and God has a plan, and God has a purpose, and he's working that out. He is choosing those who will be his in his justice, in his goodness, in his love, in his mercy, and he calls all to come. And so, if you have trusted him, rejoice. Rejoice in what God has done for you. And if you've never trusted him, then hear the call of the sovereign God, the sovereign God who works salvation in the hard hearts of sinners like you and like me. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how long you've been doing it. You can come and you can trust and you can be born again and you can receive a new heart because God loves you and he sent his son Jesus to die for our sins. And that's the gospel. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for your goodness to us. We ask that you would just flood our hearts with your beauty, with the amazing mercy that you have extended to people like us who don't deserve it. Lord, would you remove from our minds any notion that we contribute even the smallest part to your saving of us. Help us to see, God, that it's all from you so that you would become our all in all. And Lord, we pray for those who don't know you. Lord, open their eyes. Lord, cause them to see Jesus and to see their sin Cause them to turn from their sin, Lord. Save them by your mercy. Make them your children. Lord, we ask you to help us be a people that submit to your word, even when we don't understand it. Because we know that you are good. We love you. And we trust you. And Lord, we pray all these things in Jesus' powerful and beautiful and all-satisfying name. And all God's people said.